Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and expert clinicians in critical care. We ask them to share their insights about relevant critical care topics. And for today, we discuss the challenges of designing ARDS trials in the 21st century. Okay, so before we get started, uh, could you please introduce yourselves? Um, Mike and then Michelle. I'm Mike Lanspa at Intermountain Medical Center, Salt Lake City, Utah. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Michelle Ngong. I am the um, Interim Chief and Director of Critical Care Research at Montefiore Medical Center and the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, and I'm one of the uh, principal investigators of the Montefiore Sinai Clinical Centers and the NHLPI pedal network, as well as um, one of the protocol chairs for um, the Lotus Root Study. Okay, an absolute pleasure to have both of you on this podcast today. Um, today we'll be discussing your paper published in the Annals of ATS entitled A Prospective Assessment of the Feasibility of a Trial of Low Tidal Volume Ventilation for Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure. And before we get into that, I was hoping you all could give us maybe a bit of a background about uh, what the pedal network is and why you all designed uh, the Lotus Food Study. The Pedal Network is an organization of uh, several institutions for the prevention and early treatment of acute lung injury. It's a uh, research network sponsored by the National Heart Lung Blood Institute of the uh, NIH. And the primary goal is to perform interventional trials to help further our prevention and treatment of uh, acute lung injury and ARDS. And this follows off the work of ARDSnet, which made quite a few impressive publications with uh, the low tidal volume study as well as for uh, the the fluid and catheter treatment trial. And so this is basically the next step as we've found some therapies that may help treat ARDS. Now we're looking for things that might help prevent or treat early uh, ARDS. Lotus fruit was originally meant as a uh, preliminary uh, way of getting information for another interventional trial called the uh, LOTUS study, which was Low Tidal Volume Universal Support, which was a trial that was proposed by uh, Michelle Gong. LOTUS was a study that was designed to be a pragmatic implementation of low tidal volume or uh, lung protective ventilation in all comers, not just patients with ARDS. Because what we found was that despite having pretty good evidence that low tidal volume seems to save lives in ARDS, we found even in centers that were ARDSnet centers that conducted the original trial, uh, adherence to low tidal volume ventilation was actually not very good. And we thought this would be a way of uh, implementing low tidal volume across all of the study networks, which would reduce unnecessary variation. So, um, the, as Michael was indicating, you know, LOTUS was a slightly different trial than what ARDSnet had done in the past in that it was pragmatic as well as a what they called a hybrid implementation trial. And what that means is um, pragmatic trials, unlike some of the trials that have been done um, in uh, other arenas, is meant to be a... a trial that is done in the real-world setting, okay, where um, that really reflects actually how an intervention compares to the usual clinical care. In addition, LOTUS was supposed to be a uh, hybrid implementation trial, which means 
It is both looking at how to promote best practice as well as actually extend it in a slightly different population to see if there is efficacy. That's the hybrid part of it. So the um, implementation part of it is how can we best promote long tidal volume ventilation, lung protective ventilation in patients with ARDS, which we know is the thing to do and the recommended therapy in ARDS, but that we know from lung safe that our adherence to this is still suboptimal, to say the least. In lung safe, I believe as much as like over 30% of the patients with ARDS are still getting high tidal volumes. The alternative to that, the hybrid part of that is, well, what about the patients who don't have ARDS? Because one strategy to promote low tidal volume in patients with ARDS is just to do low tidal volume in everyone because one of the big barriers to implementation of low tidal volume is poor recognition of when ARDS develops. Well, this gives us an opportunity to also examine low tidal volume ventilation in patients who don't have ARDS. And this is important because there's been a number of different studies and trials that have come out, from our research for NATO, for example, that have indicated that may be important to have low tidal volume ventilation even in patients without ARDS because it may decrease the development of ARDS, decrease pulmonary and non-pulmonary complications, um, and duration of mechanical ventilation. So we thought that this was a ideal opportunity to leverage actually um, the successes of the ArtsNet and use this innovative new kind of an approach in clinical trials um, to look at this particular question of low tidal volume ventilation, not only in patients with ARDS and how we can better do that better, but also in patients with acute respiratory failure without ARDS. Now, the problem with such a trial is, because it's innovative, it hasn't been done before, um, and the design of it can be quite tricky, which um, Michael can talk a little bit more about. It will have to deal with cluster randomization, and it also will have to deal with um, what is usual care. Because you're not going to, it's not like ARMA, where we randomize somebody to 10 cc's and 6 cc's, because we know we shouldn't do that in ARDS anymore. They shouldn't be ventilating 10 cc's. So you really have to look and see how it would compare to usual care. But the question came up is, what is usual care? Is it like what's seen in lung safe? Or is it different? Because these were centers that are involved in the ARDS network as well as in the pedal network. Great. Thanks, Michelle, for that overview. So, Mike, um, what would, what were the specific aims of the Lotus Fruit Study, and what unique features of the study enable these aims to be achieved? And I know Michelle mentioned the importance of defining what usual care is. We had two main goals with Lotus Fruit. One was to just conduct a prospective observational study within all of the pedal network sites, uh, that would allow us to determine the frequency of and the outcomes from acute respiratory failure, as well as the whatever usual care was for uh, low tidal volume ventilation uh, in patients that had ARDS, as well as patients who uh, were intubated but did not have ARDS. And then the second aim was to do a simulation study, uh, to simulate the design and figure out how many patients we would need to appropriately power the actual Lotus uh, trial. And so these sound fairly simple when you lay them out, but it's actually, there's quite a bit of work involved to uh, do the uh, simulation and the, uh, the power calculation. And this is one of the reasons why this 
study I think is so interesting, it's actually not that common for a lot of these interventional trials to do uh, uh, any sort of preliminary work other than a back-of-the-envelope power calculation. Uh, and this leads to a lot of problems when the study, the actual main study gets published, uh, when you have a lot of money and a lot of effort expended towards a study that has questionable generalizability because the study population is not really representative of what the clinical population is, as well as that raises questions about whether or not these studies are appropriately powered. I can think of several large randomized controlled trials that were underpowered from the start, and uh, we, we wonder whether or not the clinical question is significant. If it shows there's no difference between the arms and we don't have appropriate power, we wonder if that's the case. We, I can think of several other studies that start off with unrealistic expectations of enrollment, and they don't discover that they have overestimated their ability to enroll until after they've spent a considerable amount of money. And so the goal of Lotus Fruit was to basically do a uh, reasonably cheap estimation of how much money and how much how many patients would be required to actually pull off Lotus. And I think that is a huge uh, step forward in how we design clinical trials. I think going uh, forward from here, more studies, uh, more multicenter studies that are going to be considered big efforts that are designed to answer serious questions about how we manage patients need to have something like lotus fruit, a preliminary study that is designed to simulate whether or not we can actually do the, the main study. Gotcha. And then digging into um, this concept of usual care, because that usually comes up in certain trials as to whether the population, um, the care that patients receive is usual care. Maybe you could dive into that and tell us uh, how you'll define usual care and what challenges you'll had in doing that. Sure. So usual care was basically we calculated from a bunch of these hospitals. We had about 49 hospitals, and we enrolled about 2,800 patients over a 30-day period, and basically we uh, maxed out to 100 patients. So hospitals could enroll anywhere from zero to 100 patients. Some hospitals had more than others, but if they did 100, we would cap out at 100 to prevent one hospital from uh, fully dominating the study. So we ended up finding out that usual care was basically a large number of these patients were intubated for hypoxemia, like hypoxemic respiratory failure. About a third of the patients uh, were intubated for that, uh, followed by altered mental status. Almost a third uh, were intubated for mental status. And so we looked and saw among all these people about 76% uh, of the uh, patients that we thought had ARDS actually met ARDS right after their initial intubation, and about 20% or so met ARDS criteria after the initial intubation. So most of these people who were intubated started off either with ARDS or, or without it. There were a few people, you know, there was about 180 patients who changed to ARDS uh, throughout their intubation duration. And we noted that the percent of people who actually had low tidal volume, which is six cc's per kilogram of predicted body weight, we were able to identify what their tidal volumes were in almost all patients, about 90% of patients. But things that we found interesting was among people who had respiratory failure, about a little over 20% actually had tidal volumes greater than eight milliliters per kilogram. And among ARDS patients, same number, about 21%, which is pretty remarkable since these are hospitals that a lot of them were ARDSnet centers, and all of these hospitals are study hospitals that are involved in research and are 
aware of what best practice is. And this is not some new therapy. Low tidal volume ventilation has been around for decades. And still, in one out of five patients with ARDS, we weren't even close to achieving low tidal volume ventilation. There were a few sites that had excellent adherence to low tidal volume ventilation, uh, but there were probably, I think, 15 sites out of our uh, study that had over 30% of patients that were receiving more than 8 milliliters per kilogram of predicted body weight. So that is a significant issue here when we're talking about how well the study centers were adhering to low tidal volume ventilation. And we thought one advantage of implementing LOTUS early in the pedal network was that we would have not only the benefits of LOTUS, which would be bringing everyone on board with low tidal volume ventilation, but then every future study that the pedal network would produce would show good adherence to low tidal volume ventilation, especially in ARDS patients. Well said, Michael. And and I think, you know, with regard to your earlier question about, well, what does this mean in terms of your usual care? We found actually a few things that Michael had kind of mentioned. You know, one was is that there's great variability from site to site. You know, Michael mentioned that there were some sites that were very adherent and then some sites that were less. The average tidal volume was about six. It was a six point eight, no seven point two, right, Michael? Yeah. Um, seven point two cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. Um, but that's the average, and that average reflects actually some patients getting lower and some patients getting higher. And as Michael indicated, that on average, it was about twenty two percent of the patients in the study had tidal volumes greater than eight cc's, and it varied greatly by site. We also noticed a couple of other interesting things. There was essentially no difference in terms of tidal volume use or the percentage of patients getting high tidal volume, whether they have ARDS or not. It suggests, actually, that SICE just sets the tidal volume, and whether or not the patient has ARDS or not, it's a little bit immaterial with regard to how they practice, unless they're very severely hypoxic. And sites that actually do best in terms of adherence to low tidal volume ventilation in ARDS were also sites that used low tidal volume ventilation universally among all of their patients. We also found that there seems to be little change in tidal volume after patients are put on it. So if you were put on a tidal volume that was high to begin with, in all likelihood, you'll stay high. And if you will start on low, in all likelihood, you'll stay low. So the fact that the, the patients who are put on low and stay on low versus the, those that are placed on high and stay on high, I mean, that kind of goes to the core of your concept that if you start everyone in a low tidal volume ventilation, you're more likely to have a lung protective strategy than not. Is that correct? Exactly. And that is that those findings of the usual care reaffirm that maybe with Lotus, the approach of using a um, default initial low tidal volume ventilation in all patients might, one, promote greater adherence to low tidal volume ventilation in ARDS, and then give us an opportunity to examine how low tidal volume ventilation may or may not benefit patients without ARDS. But whether or not that's feasible leads to the second aim that Michael was talking about with the lotus fruit. Yeah, the second aim was to do a simulation model. And this was the part that was requiring a little bit more uh, heavy lifting than uh, just documenting what we had done. There's a lot of studies, I think, that have been appropriately 
powered by looking at what usual care is. But I think what's really interesting about lotus fruit was we did a calculation based on data from the lotus fruit cohort as well as the original ArtsNet title volume trial and the ProVent trial. And we calculated how much benefit we thought would occur if we lowered tidal volume from whatever usual care was to 6 cc's per uh, kilogram of predicted body weight. And we ended up uh, performing multivariate models for mortality with inverse probability propensity scores. And we showed that there was actually not a huge amount of benefit because tidal volume was fairly low in a lot of patients. So it wasn't 6 cc's per kilogram, but if the average was 7.1 to 7.2 milliliters per kilogram, in a lot of those patients there'd be no benefit. And then in sites that had excellent adherence, like less than 6.5 milliliters per uh, kilogram, uh, you would have essentially almost no benefit for implementation. So the simulation would probably be best if we limited it to the sites that had the worst adherence. So part of the simulation was not just to look at how well this would work amongst all the pedal network sites, but also what if we limited it to certain sites and tried to maximize which sites might be the best for enrolling in the uh, lotus fruit. So we performed multiple simulations, and really when I say we, this is really the work of David Schoenfeld, who is a brilliant statistician and uh, you know, a clinical trialist, and we found out that we would have to exclude a lot of sites in order to actually try to get a significant signal with this intervention, so much so that we wouldn't realistically be able to do this. So we found out that we would probably get a maximal mortality benefit of maybe 2% if we kind of took the best possible choices out of the ProVent, ArtsNet trial, and the Lotus Fruit data. And if we said 2% was the best we could get from implementing Lotus, if we did a four-year trial within the pedal network, we would have to get over 100,000 patients in order to have a realistic power to detect a real improvement in mortality, assuming excellent adherence to low tidal volume ventilation. One of the things that we had to basically imagine was how well are we going to actually be able to pull off LOTUS. No intervention is going to be 100% compliant. One of the interesting things about LOTUS is we had a lot of strategies on how we were going to try to increase compliance, but that part could not really be studied until we actually implemented LOTUS. And so we had done different calculations assuming 100% adherence, 80% adherence. We had questions if, what if we excluded the hospitals that already were really, really good at low tidal volume ventilation? What sort of mortality benefit we could get? And yeah, if we excluded those sites that already were doing low tidal volume ventilation, we could improve the estimated mortality benefit, which would allow us to preserve power and decrease the number of patients. But even if we excluded the best 20 sites, which was 40% of the pedal network, we would still need 66,000 patients that were trying to do low tidal volume ventilation to even show a realistic attempt to do mortality benefit. So after that simulation trial, we said, well, you know, 100,000 patients in four years is just not feasible. We don't have a current mechanism to enroll patients that cheaply. We expected excessively high study costs because the budget that we had for lotus fruit was about $215 per patient. And that was just very simple collection of data over a period of time. To do an interventional trial, we expected the cost would be much, much higher. We expected this would be $23 million even at the cheapest to do it at all sites, or if we did it at just those 29 sites with the worst tidal volumes, it would be $14 million. That was not deemed feasible. 
Now, things may change if we develop trial mechanisms where we could enroll people more cheaply, but right now that's that's just not feasible. So just to highlight that point, I mean, so in order to conduct the programmatic trial, you'd require 106,000 patients at a cost of, I think you said, $250 million or around about that, whereas doing your observational study um, probably came to uh, about 500,000 or uh, about a million uh, enrolling about 2,000 patients. So that's the power um, of doing your analysis rather than launching into a full-scale pragmatic trial uh, using a back-of-the-envelope uh, analysis. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the problem is, is with these kind of pragmatic trials, it's not, it's a step wedge cluster randomized um, proposal for the LOTUS. So that's not even a trial that you could stop early um, to if there is lack of fertility or lack of power. So and it really benefited this particular design to invest in a observational study to understand what is the current usual care rather than assume it and then do real calculations with observed numbers from the sites that would be proposed to do the study to give us the best accurate, um, best accuracy in terms of understanding what would be required to make this trial successful. In the end, we decided that the LOTUS uh, study was probably not a feasible study within the pedal network. That's not to say it couldn't be feasible in other centers that have lower rates of adherence, low tidal volume, but not within the pedal network itself. Um, and overall, that saved us multiple folds of um, cost rather than going through with the trial itself. Okay. And then in terms of um, the limitations that you identified in conducting this observational study, maybe you could just list them for the benefit of our uh, listeners, um, because there were some limitations that you mentioned. Sure. Uh, So one limitation is the Hawthorne effect. Uh, The Hawthorne effect is when you know you're being studied, you may end up changing your behavior. Everyone knew that their tidal volumes would be uh, measured as part of the lotus fruit, and there is a subconscious, if not conscious, desire to make sure that you're performing best practice. I think nobody wants to hear that their hospital is not performing the best practice. So there is a possibility that these sites may have not actually been performing usual care. They may have been doing a little bit better than what they would have done otherwise. I don't think that's a prominent feature, just uh, speaking from my experience with a lot of these uh, studies. I think most of the management here is institutional, and we tried to make efforts to not change uh, behavior in that in that regard. There were some other limitations here. One, because of the amount of money that we could spend on this, we wanted to try to not overwhelm the uh, data collection with a lot of time points, and so we only measured tidal volume at discrete times rather than continuously, and we assumed that there would be not a whole lot of change in the tidal volume over the course of the day, although that could occur. It seems like based on day-to-day change, we didn't see very much, and so we expect that it's probably that there wasn't much change throughout the day, although that was something that we didn't collect. We also missed height measurements in about a tenth of the patients. Current medical documentation apparently uh, doesn't document height in about 10% of the patients of these study hospitals. The other issue here is that we assume a linear relationship between lowering tidal volume and mortality benefit. And so we had assumed that if you drop from eight to six 
or from seven to six, the mortality benefit is basically twice as good from lowering from eight to six as it is to seven to six. And that may not be the case. It may be a nonlinear relationship. Perhaps in patients with ARDS, there's no difference between six, seven, uh, but there's a big jump between eight, nine, 10, and then perhaps there's not much change between 10 and 12. We just don't account for that. We assume a, a linear relationship. We did do a spline model to try to see whether or not there is a nonlinear relationship, but our spline model didn't suggest that there was uh, any uh, benefit in trying to do a nonlinear model. The other big limitation is one that Michelle had mentioned, is that these are study sites that may have better than average adherence to low tidal volume ventilation because a lot of them were ARDSnet sites, and all of them are study sites, many of which are tertiary care centers that are led by investigators who study ARDS. It is possible that if we limited this LOTUS study to hospitals that had poor adherence to low tidal volume ventilation or, or sites where that was less common, it may be feasible. As well as if there was a hospital that had automated data extraction, that would also substantially cheapen the, uh, the, the cost of the study. So it is feasible to think you could perform the LOTUS study if you limited it only to hospitals where data extraction could be done automatically. Gotcha. Thanks, Mike, for highlighting those limitations. So, Michelle, I'm going to turn to um, t- towards the end of uh, this podcast. So, this this study this study is very informative um, uh, in terms of dealing uh, in terms of designing the Lotus uh, study. How do you think it would impact future studies uh, in the 21st century, um, future ARDS trials, or even critical care trials? Um, Should we be performing observational studies beforehand to determine the feasibility of them rather than embarking on a massive multi-center trial um, where we end up with a uh, non-result? That's a great question. And I would actually broaden it not just with regards to trials and ARDS, but a large question of like, well, how do you design pragmatic trials where maybe a control group is usual care? Or you want to have a trial that is um, reflective of uh, current clinical practices um, in usual hospitals. Uh, And I say that because um, those are increasingly trials that are um, more and more popular. So you see it in the New York Times as they talk about actually the value of um, pragmatic trials. You see it if you actually Google pragmatic trials or do it, put it in PubMed, and you see this exponential increase in the number of trials that are designed that are pragmatic. And these trials are no less rigorous than any of the other kind of efficacy trials where you know you have very tight inclusion and exclusion criteria. But part of that rigor is understanding actually what the usual care is, and understanding actually what the real world practice is. And to better design these kind of trials and to see actually how it works is that you need to be able to put in the investment of doing an observational trial rather than actually taking what's in the literature and extrapolating it. And I think uh, Lotus Fruit is a good example of that kind of an approach. Um, I think the NIH is also seeing the values of those kind of approach and has had funded several mechanisms where... There is a prep period before the trial goes through where um, you could actually do this kind of study to better design your trial and determine early on whether or not it's a go or maybe it's not the right time. And I think we'll see more and more of this. 
kind of approach going forward in the future. And then, Mike, in terms of challenges that you think we will face um, in conducting these uh, prospective observational studies, um, maybe you could detail that for us. Yeah, I think our biggest challenge with conducting trials is we have basically a choice between doing a very internally valid study that has no generalizability, and the literature is just rife with that, versus trying to do an externally valid generalizable study, these pragmatic studies. As Michelle was mentioning, pragmatic trials, which are designed to measure effectiveness, are designed to be externally valid. That is something that I think is very appealing. The problem is, to do it right costs a lot of money. And one of the reasons for that is because our current mechanism for how we study patients costs a lot of money. It seems absurd to a person who doesn't do research when we say, well, just to collect this data costs about $200 per person. And we didn't even do an intervention. We just were measuring things and doing some stuff on a computer. And we said this total budget ended up being almost half a million dollars. And so people who don't do research don't realize how much money it costs. And that is just to collect limited amount of data. We were torn between how much data we'd like to collect because this information would be useful for designing other studies. One thing that I think needs to happen for us to move forward scientifically is to develop low-cost ways of enrolling patients and collecting data. Automation, I think, is one of the best ways to do this. So if we could have a system or an electronic medical record that would automatically collect data, that would be a, a way of reducing overhead. If we had another way of reducing the amount of paperwork burden that's required, we might be able to reduce some of the person hours required to conduct a trial. Just to enroll a single patient requires a lot of clinical coordinator time in an interventional trial. I think the big limitations that we have are financial. On top of that, there's also some issues with the incentive for doing a generalizable study. I think this is a heroic effort that requires a lot of involvement with people where it's much easier for an investigator to publish a first author publication that's internally valid, that is not reproducible and not generalizable. Part of that is demonstrated in our medical culture. I'm reminded of, there was a study, I think, I want to say it was like 2015 or 16 in critical care med that was done by Ryan Ivey that looked at the applicability of the most common ICU trials in uh, general ICUs, basically looking how many people actually met criteria, enrollment criteria for the, the biggest sepsis or ARDS or mechanical ventilation trials. And I think it was uh, something like um, over 50% of patients didn't meet enrollment criteria for any of the, the major studies. We have all these studies that are being published that aren't generalizable. To do a study that That's is incredible. generalizable costs money. And it takes effort, and it's often a multi-center collaboration. That's a bigger hurdle when trying to get publication, tenure, additional funding, and it's uh, much easier to publish a smaller study that's internally valid that looks like a big hit that's completely not reproducible or not generalizable. So we need to change our medical culture, I think, and reward people for doing multi-center trials where you know they are pragmatic and uh, generalizable. Gotcha. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Thanks, Mike. A big thank you to Drs. Lansper and Gong, and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society. 